Welcome, this is Tapping Into Creativity, a podcast in which we explore the magic that happens when creativity, art and education meet. We are a group of professionals and pioneers from Ireland, Greece, Serbia, Austria and the Netherlands working together. By sharing stories, we hope to learn about successful practices throughout Europe and inspire you with the lessons learned. I am Lena Rosink and I am Manja Eland. We are your hosts. Hi, Linda. There we are again for our very last episode of this season. It is, and what a ride it has been. I really enjoyed this season and all the people we spoke to. Yes, they were so generous with their time and sharing their stories. And I hope you enjoyed listening as well uh, for our listeners. So who is our guest today? Our guest today is Paul Collard. He is recently retired professional from England, working for a long time with arts and education in many countries and in many roles, but mainly somebody who really moves and shakes the education system, I think, on a grand scale. What was really lovely is we were talking about how schools are more about schooling children, which is not entirely the same as learning. So you could say that learning happens when you are totally immersed in a subject and when you're challenged and trying to master something. So he actually said that teachers are too kind, um, (laughs) which was interesting. He states it's counterproductive. You need a challenge. You need to work really, really hard and just give yourself to this process to really learn something. That's one of the things that I really enjoyed. And also, in the beginning of his career, he's been working with uh, struggling communities in England. And one example he's talking about is how arts helped the community make the shift from being a hand labor community to a service-oriented community. This is, I think, in the neighborhood of Newcastle. And people there were working in industries with their hands, doing a lot of hand labor. But, of course, most of the production has gone elsewhere, so they needed to reinvent themselves. And he's explaining how the arts helped the community to make the shift. So I think that was very inspirational as well. Mm -hmm. There are so many stories in this podcast. For those who don't know, Paul's a really great storyteller. Uh, So he really takes us along on a ride through his extensive career, 30 years in creativity and arts and education. Along the way, we'll find a whole bunch of animals. There will be things about frogs. There will be things about risk-taking. It's a fun ride. I really hope that people enjoy this conversation as much as we have done. And before we let you dive into this episode, we really would like to invite you to talk to us and let us know how you felt about tapping into creativity up until now, which episodes you enjoyed the most, which episodes you haven't heard yet, which people should we talk to. Because this is the end of this season and we are thinking about going on for a third season, but we could use some input. So please do not hesitate to let us know. Yes, any topics, questions or people to talk to, let us know. And thank you so much for uh, joining us and listening. Good morning, uh, Paul. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. My name is Paul Collard. I'm actually officially retired now. 
and live in the wilds of Northumberland. Most of my neighbours are sheep. Um, <laughs> they make good company. <laughs> lots of, they're very compliant and, and lots of other animals. And my life is full of the house and garden, which is very big and runs out of control very easily. And I still do some work. I'm just back from five weeks in Thailand, mm -hmm. where I've been working with trainee teachers, helping them put creativity at the heart of learning. And I have my grandchildren. I only have two so far. I expect more. I keep telling them. <laughs> <laughs> and they are non-identical twins who are just over two years old and absolutely the most gorgeous children in the world. And they bring you right back to your mission of creativity and play and learning together, I imagine. Oh, absolutely. I've been able to observe them in a way that I never managed to observe my own children mm -hmm. and to watch them learn and how they learn. And it has been astonishing to me. There is so much I've discovered. For instance, although they are only just beginning to speak, words, I realized that from very early on, they had a huge vocabulary. They knew lots of words. And this lag between your ability to speak and your ability to know words has been very interesting to me. I tend to be a Wittgensteinist in that I always thought you couldn't think things you didn't have words for. Oh. And then with the children, I thought, To begin with, they didn't have words, and, but they obviously had thoughts. <laughs> but then I realized that they had words. They just didn't know how to speak them. They are, from birth, such independent thinkers. It's really quite extraordinary, with opinions on almost everything and very strong ones. <laughs> and that's been amazing to watch. I think, where does all that personality and opinion come from? <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting that you say about words and being able to speak them. I used to work with a lady and she has a whole business around sign language, not for deaf children, but for toddlers who are not able to speak yet. Because like you said, they do have words. Yes. Thanks. That's very nice and personal. <laughs> so can you tell me, like you are saying, you are now retired. Mm -hmm. How did you get into arts and education, yeah. because I think that's the main theme you've been working on through your career. By accident. <laughs> <laughs> They're the best. I was based in Geneva in my mid-twenties, I suppose, working for the Aga Khan Foundation. I don't know if you know the Aga Khan. He's a very powerful Islamic religious figure, and he has a big foundation, and I was helping the foundation organize a very big conference in China. And uh, this was in the early 1980s. And China was just beginning to open up a bit. And it involved me going to China quite a lot. And then a friend of a friend rang me out of the blue. And he was director of the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London, which is a big contemporary arts centre. The On the Mall, right next to Buckingham Palace, which has got three art galleries and two cinemas and a theatre and various other complexes there. But he rang me because he'd been invited to go to China and somebody said, oh, Paul's just been in China. Why don't you meet up with him and he'll be able to give you some tips on China. 
So he was holidaying in the south of France with his children and he rang me out of the blue and explained. And I said, oh, yeah, come and have lunch and we'll have lunch together. And I had lunch with his children and I told him stuff about China that I knew. And he was camping with his children and he said, was there anywhere to camp? And I was staying in this chateau on the edge of Lake Geneva because I wasn't in Geneva very often. And usually when I was there, I stayed in hotels. But the director of the foundation had a chateau on the edge of the lake and he'd gone on holiday. And he said, why don't I live in his house whilst he's away? So someone was looking after it. And then the deputy director of the foundation came over. He was new and he was looking for somewhere to live and he was with his wife and baby. And I suggested his wife and baby moved into the chateau as well. And then Bill McAllister and his children, I invited to camp. Now his children were very wild and they'd bought a lot of fireworks in France where they're easily obtainable apparently. Mm -hmm. And after dark, they set off some of these fireworks, which disturbed a hornet's nest. And so there were these angry hornets flying around in the dark. And they stung the baby of the deputy director, whose parents obviously went into complete panic. So I had to call the paramedics. So ambulances came screaming over. (laughs) And in the middle of all this, the director whose chateau it was, arrived unannounced (laughs) because he'd been asked to attend a meeting and he'd come back via Geneva um, to pick up some papers and he found ambulances with flashing lights outside, Mm -hmm. hornets flying around, all sorts of people living in his house and garden. But I managed to calm him down, got him off to bed, cooked a meal for everybody, settled everybody down and was left finally having a quiet glass of wine with Bill and Bill said to me your ability to cope with that situation was amazing would you come and be general manager of the ICA because those are the skills that I need and that's how I came to be working in the arts and ICA stands for sorry Institute of Contemporary Arts ah okay yeah that's amazing that's the best job interview ever (laughs) (laughs) yeah I would almost like to quote Bob Ross. There are only happy little excellence. <laughs> Fantastic. So no babies were harmed during the process and you now had a new job. <laughs> <laughs> They all recovered and went on to live a long and happy life. <laughs> Interesting. What was your job like at the contemporary arts? Well, I lived in a state of complete terror because I'd never been a manager of anything before. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly found myself, I don't know, I was about 26, as manager of a fairly significant cultural institution. We had about 120 staff. And I had no idea what to do or what was going to happen next because I had no experience of doing all this. And the... ICA was a place of great unexpectedness all the time. <laughs> we once had a Belgium company called Jan Fabre, who you might well know of. Yes, definitely. He was when he was still young and starting out. And uh, we booked them to perform for a week in our theatre. And uh, on the Friday, reception called me and said, there's some people who want to see you. And I went downstairs and they were offices from the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And they came and said, we have heard a report 
that you have a production going on in which there are live frogs. <laughs> and it is actually illegal for people to own frogs okay. as pets. And we are concerned about their welfare and um, we would like to see them. <laughs> so I said, well, wait here a minute. And I went back to the theatre and theatre was empty apart from a stage manager up a ladder because this was the middle of the day. So I said to the stage manager, uh, where are the frogs? He said, they're in that box at the back. And I went and opened the lid of the box and inside were 10 dead frogs. Because frogs, one of the reasons you're not allowed to have frogs is because they won't eat in captivity. Mm. So they don't live very long. And so I went back to the inspectors and I said, I'm terribly sorry, the frogs aren't here at the moment. The Belgian theatre company to whom they belong like to take them for a walk during the day. And the inspectors said, oh, well, we'll be back at five o'clock when the company come back and we expect to see them then. So I rushed back upstairs and said, quick, we need to get dead frogs. <laughs> and as I say, this is not an easy thing to do, but we discovered a laboratory because laboratories are allowed to have frogs, provided they torture and kill them, which is why they have them, <laughs> who were willing to uh, part with 10 frogs uh, for us. But uh, this was now Friday afternoon and they were outside London. So we sent a motorbike with a box at the back that could find its way to get through the traffic and had the frogs back uh, by five o'clock, jumping happily around their box. And... Um, the inspectors said, you know, you must never do this again, but thank you for showing us your frogs, and um, and departed. And that was more or less what life every day was like at the ICA. <laughs> and how long did you uh, stay on? I stayed there for five years. Oh, um, okay. As general manager, I was legally responsible for everything. <laughs> so <laughs> whenever we got into trouble, which was often, then I was the person who would be prosecuted for various things. <laughs> And how many times did you get prosecuted? <laughs> well, actually, only a couple of times. There's a licensing system for theatres in the United Kingdom. It's probably the same. In Holland, you need to get a license from your local authority. Mm -hmm. And the local authority, which was a very right-wing local authority, took exception to a performance by an American performance artist uh, which they decided was obscene. It was ironic because the piece was actually a critique of pornography delivered by a woman performance artist, but they misunderstood it completely. And they tried to take our license away, mm -hmm. but in fact they weren't entitled to do so. So I hired a very good human rights lawyer who defended me and... Um, to say that wasn't in their powers to take away our license for obscenity because those powers had been abolished in the 1970s. So I got close to being prosecuted. We did a very big Robert Maplethorpe exhibition, the American photographer, whose work you probably know. And um, the director of public prosecutions came to visit this exhibition because it had some very graphic sexual imagery in it. So I had to go around the exhibition with him. And he said to me at the end, if I see any of these images anywhere else other than in this gallery, I will sue. But I'm not going to sue the Institute of Contemporary Arts for obscenity because it will just become a huge trial pantomime, really. 
And it made me realize that we'd reached a stage where you can't shock anybody with anything in a gallery anymore. Galleries mm. had become unshockable spaces. And since many artists wish to challenge deeply things, the gallery's probably not the place to do it. So is that how you left the gallery and got into education? <laughs> no, I did um, more art. After that, I went to work for the British Film Institute, who have a big uh, complex on the London South Bank, which had the National Film Theatre. And essentially, I went to open a new museum of the moving image, which was being built and completed at that stage. And also in the same complex, we ran the London Film Festival. So I did that for five years. Then I went off and ran uh, the biggest visual arts festival that has ever been in the UK, which lasted for a year in 1996 and took place across the very north of England, up on the borders with Scotland. And then I went off to the States to run a big international festival in New Haven in Connecticut. New Haven is probably most famous because it's where Yale University is. So it's like the thread is your problem-solving skills and creativity Because I imagine festivals are just like this contemporary art center are a place where things are happening all the time and it requires you to be flexible and jump in and solve things. I think that that's absolutely true. But I'd also been all the time that I was working directly in the arts interested in the social and political dynamic of the arts. And therefore, it tended not to be arts for art's sake but arts for social and political purpose mm -hmm. was what really drove me this big festival that i rang in the north of england was primarily an economic and social regeneration project which was attempting to reinvent the north of england which had been in the 19th century the industrial heart of the United Kingdom and it's where our coal and our steel and our ships and our trains and all these things we invented came from but from the end of the second world war it sort of went into industrial decline and became a very impoverished area and my interest was the extent to which a major cultural initiative could help rebuild the community and the economy. That's a wonderful starting point. What were your findings? How did it impact uh, the community? It had an absolutely massive impact on the community. We did a lot of big projects for this. And one of probably the most famous was commissioning and building a an artwork from the British artist Anthony Gormley called The Angel of the North which is a huge outdoor sculpture. It's 40 meters high. And the process of commissioning this, this sculpture was extraordinary because it caused an absolute storm. So the commission was led by one of the local authorities in the area mm -hmm. called Gateshead Council, which is just south of Newcastle, the other side of the River Tyne. They're really twin cities. And from the moment we announced that we were planning to do this, it started a media firestorm. 
with all sorts of people objecting to it and the money should be spent on hospitals and schools and why are we spending all this money on great big sculptures and <laughs> whose sculpture is it anyway and what's this got to do with us? And this spread through the local and regional media to begin with. And to give you an example of the tone, there's a newspaper in Gateshead called the Gateshead Record and it had a front page story about this, which was a photograph of a huge carved angel. And the headline was Nazi but nice, question mark. Oh, yeah. And then if you open the newspaper, it had a full page editorial, which said that the sculpture on the front was commissioned by Hitler. And it all just goes to show that only fascist dictators commission sculptures of angels. And this is why the <laughs> angel should be stopped. Sounds very stormy indeed. But what was really interesting is that the politicians and the media completely misread the local mood on this. So in Gateshead Council, the Conservative Party, their campaign for three local elections in a row on a stop the angel manifesto so vote for us and we'll stop the angel by the time the angel went up there were no conservatives left on Gateshead okay. council they had all lost their seats when the angel was finished it was built in these huge sections in a shipyard in Hartlepool which is about 60 or 70 kilometers from the site it was going to be erected. They closed all the roads on a February night in order to put this on three huge trucks, huge trucks. The main body was on one and then each of the wings was on the other two. And these huge trucks drove at 10 miles an hour through the snowy winter's night. And thousands of people came out and stood by the road and cheered um, for it because what it had come to symbolise was that change was possible. It had become the symbol of that for the community and the community desperately wanted change, desperately wanted reinventing and so forth. And therefore they gathered around this icon and they've taken it to their hearts and they absolutely love it. And of course, now it's hugely ironic that the local newspapers on their leader pages now tend to have the image of the angel above their leaders, their editorials. And you go, but you're the same newspapers who spent four years condemning this. But now you actually have it as the symbol of hope and change for the whole of the Northeast. So that was an example of a project we did. Very interesting. Also, again, a happy little accident, how it can surprise you, the arts. Mm -hmm. If you're okay with this, can we move on to your organization? CCE? Creativity, Culture and Education. Yes. So you started it, I think, in 2008? Yes, although the main program I'd been running since 2004 but it was part of the Arts Council of England as a programme when I started running it. Mm -hmm. But we decided it should be separated and we created an organisation called CCE um, to do that. And can you tell me what CCE was about and what you started with? My interest in social and political regeneration through the arts, which had driven most of my arts career, had 
led me to start thinking a lot more about education. So in the case of the northeast of England, our work did lead to a huge economic revival, and particularly in turning Newcastle and the surrounding area into a major tourist destination. And as part of that economic regeneration, we managed to get EasyJet to make Newcastle a hub, which was what you need if you're going to become a tourist destination because the low f- flight carriers are the people who are going mm. to bring them. The thousands of new hotel beds opened up as people could see the potential. There was then a boom in restaurants and cafes and all those kind of things which come along as well. And then around that, a big boom in creative industries of different types and artists relocating there and little private galleries starting up and dance companies and other things like that. And for the first time in about 40 years, the population of the Northeast and the Newcastle area in particular started to expand again. It had been losing population since the end of the Second World War, but now with all this activity. But what I realized as I watched is that we were creating new jobs, we were rebuilding the economy, but those new jobs were being taken by people drawn in from outside the region uh, and yeah. weren't being taken by the people in the region. And what you were dealing with, with the people in the region, were a lot of low-skilled manual labour mm-hmm. who had worked in mines and done all sorts of jobs like that. But who actually didn't have capacity because of the lack of education to adapt to this much more modern service-driven economy. And they therefore didn't cope. They didn't get the jobs. And I then became more and more concerned about ensuring that education reaches those people, their children in particular, and develops the skills in them necessary to exist successfully in the 21st century. Because it's a very, very different world with very different social and intellectual skills necessary to navigate it. And so that's what took me in the direction of saying, what role does creativity have in developing these skills in young people? And around that time, the Brown government had decided to launch this big program called Creative Partnerships, whose purpose was to put uh, creativity at the heart of children's learning in formal education in England for exactly the same reason, which was to nurture children capable of succeeding in the 21st century. And so the program really appealed to me, particularly because it hadn't been invented. If you see what I mean. it, it was an idea um, and it needed turning into a program. And so I was lucky enough to get the job to be the director and set about making it a reality. So you had like a blank canvas to play on. You had this idea that was there? It was. And you could step in. It was idea and a lot of money, <laughs> which are always <laughs> the best combination. <laughs> <laughs> that does open doors. So... Creative partnerships is at the heart of this all. Yes. And all in favor of children learning through education or through creativity and bringing that close together. Yes. We started off saying we're about nurturing creativity. We said to the government when they asked us to do this, what is creativity, by the way, that you want us to nurture? (laughs) That's a very good question. And they said, we have no idea. We just need (laughs) lots of it. (laughs) 
So we always had a very big research program, which researched lots of things. And one of the things was to research what creativity is and produce literature reviews and other things like that and move in the direction of developing a concept of creativity which worked effectively in the classroom. And this was the creative habits of mind, Ah. which we defined as being curious, persistent, imaginative, disciplined, and collaborative. And when we started talking to teachers and saying these are the skills that we would like to develop, They were very interested because they said, we don't know if that's a good definition of creativity. What we do know is we need children who are curious, persistent, imaginative, disciplined and collaborative if any learning is going to take place in our classrooms. So if you are going to develop these, then yes, we're all in favour of working with you and exploring how we do that. And as our work continued there, I increasingly came to the view that creativity is actually how we learn. It it is the heart of learning. And that learning is the most magical and wonderful thing that human beings have come up with. And yet the tragedy of it is that most children are locked out of learning Mm -hmm. by school, which does not promote learning but promotes schooling, which is an institutionalizing process, which is trying to make you a compliant member of society. And this is why most children hate school. (laughs) Certainly my children all hated school, but they've always loved learning. And learning is the most fantastic thing that you can do. And I feel privileged to still be learning today after all these years in almost everything that I do. We should uh, always maintain learning and try to keep it as long as possible. Also the curiosity. Absolutely. Now, even though I do agree that school is not really the place to explore freely what you can learn about the world, we still do have the ambition to bring more creativity into schools by working together with teachers and artists. Absolutely. It's really important. What can be done? What projects have you done where these two worlds were collided and something new happened? Just on the subject of, of schools, in Europe, almost all European languages have the same word for school. Uh, whether it's Schule in Germany or Ecole or school in English, they all derive from the same ancient Greek word, mm-hmm. scholia. And scholia, I often tell children in school, in ancient Greek meant free time. Really? Yes. Something went wrong there. So that is the origin <laughs> of the word. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not what, it's not people, children and young people's experience of it. No. So, what needs to be done? I think the heart of it is that you need to put learning back at the heart of the classroom. And the characteristics of a learning environment is one where you are set challenges rather than given answers, and you go and work out the answers, that the content is authentic and relates to your real life, and you can understand what the 
relationship to your own life is. It's a very physical environment in which you move around a lot. You don't sit behind a desk. You move around the classroom, you go out of the classroom, you move around the school, you go out into the community. Movement is really important. It's a very social environment where people pay attention to building relationships um, and relationships between the teacher and the children and amongst the children matter and they're given time to grow because collaboration, which is an expression of a strong relationship, is essential to learning. It's a space in which emotion is acknowledged and addressed and dealt with through the learning as well as in parallel with the learning. It's an environment in which the learner is at the heart of the learning and is the main learning resource. And the learner's questions and interests drive learning and contribute to designing what is going to happen in the classroom or outside the classroom or anywhere where learning is happening. And it is always focused on developing self-managed learners. Which also would feed into staying a learner all your life. Which is staying a learner all your life. Yeah. And you have to learn to be a learner in class. This, what you're saying, uh, reminds me a little bit of a video I was watching in preparation for this conversation, mm-hmm. where you spoke about the low-functioning and high-functioning classrooms. Is that correct? That's correct. That's absolutely right. And what I'm describing is the high-functioning classroom. Yeah. And as I would have said in that video, it's an environment in which you are physically, socially, emotionally, and intellectually engaged. And to me, that's the definition of being fully alive and fully present when all those aspects of you are there. And of course, if you're fully present and fully alive, your learning is going to be good. The problem in most classrooms is that the pupils are somewhere else. They never turned up. Mentally. (laughs) Mentally, exactly. And I keep saying to teachers, just because they're sitting there in the classroom doesn't mean that they have committed to being here. So in order to get teachers to develop those sort of learning environments and artists, because a lot of our programs involve putting artists in to work with the teachers as well, we have developed training programs. And Mm -hmm. the training programs are always designed to model the learning environment that we are trying to stimulate. So the high-functioning classroom absolutely is at the heart of all the training that we provide so that at the end hopefully people will not only have reflected on and developed their personal practice to the extent that is necessary to deliver high functioning learning environments but they've also experienced a high functioning learning environment and therefore can see why it's the way to learn. I think we always get to know things better by experiencing than by hearing. Exactly. I can read about my beautiful textured lights. The smell as well, I heard from another video. Yes. <laughs> Environment where you feel at home. Yes. But it has to come alive from paper. Yes. So if you can, before we dive into the next big project, tiny little steps our listeners. Say there are some teachers listening. Yeah. And they're inspired by the big stories, but they want to take a little step tomorrow. What could I do? It's 
actually the little steps that are the really important ones. And it's thinking about your practice and thinking about your lesson plans and comparing your lesson plans with the high-functioning classroom characteristics and going, how physical is this lesson I'm about to deliver? Are they just going to sit behind their desks the whole time? What can I do to make sure that doesn't happen? How is this lesson going to contribute to building relationships? What is the role of emotion in this lesson? How will I be dealing with it and allowing it to be expressed? To what extent am I setting real challenges? And to what extent am I trying to make my learners self-managing and independent? And these are all issues that we talk about. You talk to teachers very often, ask them to reflect on what was a great learning experience in their life and analyse the characteristics of it. And one of the things that they very often go is talk about learning from mistakes and failure when things didn't work. And what a very powerful learning experience that was when they sat down and reflected on it and so on. And I say, great, I absolutely believe that's key to good learning. So you create lots of space for your children to fail in class. And they go, oh, no, we can't let them fail in class. And I say, why not? I said, oh, no, no, that wouldn't be fair. And I say, but you just said it's the best learning. But if you're going to stop them ever failing by stepping in, you know, at the earliest moment to steer them away from failure, they're never going to learn and so forth. And what they will do is become completely dependent on you. And then when they leave your class, they're going to be stuck because they actually only learnt to do what you told them to do, not to solve anything themselves. And teachers are very shocked by this because teachers on the whole are lovely people who want to give pupils a really good time. Mm-hmm. And I go, no, stop that. <laughs> actually, children and young people's concept of what a good time is, isn't that. the One of the characteristics of a lot of teaching I see is they try and make it really easy. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I've got this maths. Mm-hmm. How can I make it really easy? And I go, the thing is, there's no satisfaction in solving something easy. It, no. it isn't. What's fun is when you're given something difficult and you manage it. And if you don't manage it and you fail, then that's a great learning experience as well. So how can you go wrong? I do a lot of workshops with kids as well. And at the end, I'll reflect with them and say, so what was that like? You know, a three-hour workshop we've just done for you. And they'll go, oh, that was such fun. And I said, but you work really hard because when you engage people in a workshop, they really lose themselves in the learning and they don't even know that time is passing. And they work so hard. And so I said, but you work so hard. And they all go, yeah, hard fun. (laughs) That to me is the summary of what I'm looking for in the classroom that children are really challenged and they know it's their responsibility to solve these problems. And the teacher gets out of the way, basically. One of the research projects done was by Cambridge University, and they were looking at a particular aspect of one of our programs. But in it, the researcher quotes a conversation with a nine-year-old child. And the researcher says to the child, so what don't you like about school? And the child says, teachers. And says, why? What's wrong with teachers? It says, they're always interrupting. And the researcher (laughs) says, but... They're just trying to help you. And the child says, yes, but I came to school to learn. How can I learn if they're always interrupting? Oh, wow, that's the best. (laughs) What a smart kid. 
<laughs> no, but children know this. Uh, yeah. They get so frustrated um, by the teacher's interruptions. And it's not useful new interruptions. It's taking the fun away of what you're doing. So pupils know this is what they want. And they're willing to work really hard if you give it to them. And this works at all levels. So when we're training artists or teachers and so forth, exactly the same principles apply. Get out of the way and get out of the way. Be present in the moment. Yeah. And connect. Yeah. I also liked, I wrote down a little quote from another video from OECD, where you said, we couldn't have known what we were going to do when we started because we didn't know what we know now. Yes. And we had the courage to allow what we learned along the way to influence what we finally did. Yeah. And I think that's right at the heart of a great creative learning journey. It is. That, that's, that's a lovely quote. Thank you. It is. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it also speaks to not only to fa uh, failings can sound so negative, but it speaks to the same thing. It's allowing to be influenced by what you learn. It's true. And really, that from when I started the Greater Partnerships job, I said to the senior team we had, we are what we do in schools. And unless we are in schools, we will not know what we do. And so we had a really rigorous program of spending 14 days a quarter. Each one of the senior team had to be in a school observing learning. Mm. And, you know, it absolutely astonishes me that civil servants in ministries of education never go to schools. The only time they ever go to school is if they're accompanying a minister. But they have no idea what happens in schools at all. And um, once you get into the school, it so much becomes clear to you, absolutely. So as I say, I'm doing a lot of work in Thailand at the moment, mm -hmm. which is really fascinating. Pupils in Thailand score very poorly on international comparisons when taking their test results and comparing them with people in other countries and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And they score comparably with the poor. Generally speaking, the league table of countries corresponds almost exactly to social economic, to the poverty table, if you see what I mean. The poorer yeah. your country is, the worse the pupils do in school. But Thailand is not a poor country. It's actually a middle-income country, and it's fairly prosperous in reality. You know, it's nothing like India or Pakistan, which we've also worked in quite a lot, where you're just astonished by the poverty. Thailand's not like that at all. And therefore, it's a mystery as to why they do so poorly. And my view from having been into the schools is that Thai teachers are very nice people, And they make life very easy for children. Ah. And as a result, learning is really boring because there isn't any challenge in it. And the real need is to up the level of difficulty and challenge in classrooms from when they arrive in kindergarten. And in particular, to get them to think. And I draw this, this distinction in most classrooms that I visit that are not in one of our programs what I see going on is remembering and what I don't see going on is thinking and mm. actually thinking is what we need to teach people to do and it's really interesting that I now find universities as being deeply conservative places with a small c because Very little thinking 
goes on in universities. What happens is lots of remembering, and people who go to universities are people who are good at remembering, and they passed all the exams where they had to remember things. And therefore, you know, if you, once you get to postgraduate level and so forth, you go, right, I'm going to do some original thinking and I'm going to write this thesis. And you go and say to your teacher, I'm going to do this original thinking. And your teacher says, now just stop that. What you're <laughs> going to do is, first of all, a literature review and you're going to read every book on the subject that you want to do. And you're then going to write a big summary of all the books and what all the books have already said. And then you will critique Yes, and please make sure you quote it correctly. <laughs> you will then critique the views of other people and suggest which ones are not good and which ones are, and then do a nice summary at the end of what everybody else thought, and that's going to be your thesis. And yes, please don't add anything. <laughs> that is kind of sad, though. It is. If that's the state of our education. Yeah, and... Um, they, they, universities are absolutely convinced that this is learning of the highest order <laughs> and they have bottled it into this formula. And to me, it just kills thinking. Yeah, And it kills individuality. And it certainly kills individuality. Yeah. I wanted to make a, a small jump to the project European Perspective. Yeah. That's where we met, actually. Yeah. We were very lucky to be allowed to have a training done by you, which we really enjoyed. And in that training, European Perspective, we learned about how creativity can aid also in cultural learning, in being together in Europe with all diversity. Yeah. And one quote you gave that really struck a chord with me is you said, in arts education, we give children the opportunity to reinvent themselves or to show something different about themselves every day. Mm. Can you please tell us something more about that and why you think it does? How does that work? It's a very good question. <laughs> I think that we all have multiple identities and it's a joy to be able to play between them. And that's what gives us our richness and our individuality. One of the issues we were looking at through the training was um, about how to deal with diversity in the classroom. And this came about because the funder of the European Perspective Programme, which is a big German foundation, mm. was at that point very concerned about the impact of the Syrian refugees. And so it was a major theme of theirs coming into Germany, if you see what I mean, which is how are we going to cope with this diversity? And the problem as I saw it, and from thinking about it, and thinking about it in the workshops with people like yourselves, because they were very much a conversation in which we explored ideas together, I thought. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with the Syrian refugees was not with the Syrian refugees. The problem was with all the Germans who were struggling with this, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And I think a lot of teachers have been saying to me, oh, I'm going to be getting some Syrian refugees, what should I do? And I was going, I don't think those are necessarily the problem classrooms. The problem classrooms are the ones without Syrian refugees in them, in which a whole lot of racist and very difficult behaviour and opinions 
are coming out of the children, not that they invented them, but they've heard them at home, if you see what I mean, and how you mm. deal with that. And that's really the issue that you should be doing. And it's also the issue about the Syrian refugees is a problem if you label them Syrian refugees. These are children with lots of identities, one of which happens to be that they come from Syria and they're refugees, but they're all sorts of other people at the same time simultaneously. And the real danger is that you pigeonhole them into being the Syrian refugee children and so forth, and then that stops them being able to develop the very complex identities which I think we have and need and that bring richness to our lives. You know, being a grandparent is different from being a parent. It's another whole identity, if you see what I mean. If I try and be a parent to my grandchildren, it's not going to work because it's a different identity. My identity in jobs that I've done has changed enormously according to the needs of those jobs. And one develops personalities and behaviours which suit those things which isn't what you are when you go home and isn't what you are when you go for a run or or do something else like that so i think that the privilege of the middle classes are the people who have most been able to shed the need for narrow identities through education through experiences through art and all sorts of things like that and i suppose that's what i want for all people and to make sure that they're not shut in a box as so many people are mm-hmm. of very narrow or single identities and all the problem spots in the world are problems where a single identity has become dominant for a particular community whether it's protestants and catholics in northern ireland mm. i remember watching on television it was only about four or five years ago some news footage from Northern Ireland and there was a small Catholic primary school in the middle of a Protestant housing estate and it was the beginning of term and the parents were walking their infant children to school and adults were standing by the side of the road yelling abuse and spitting at the children and you thought How can you, adults doing that, have allowed your identity to become so narrow and blind that you can't see yourselves anymore and what you're doing? Because anybody who sees you just thinks these people are abominable and so forth. And you can't see it anymore. And it's a problem of narrow and fixed identity that stops you actually being able to see yourself anymore. And how do you think creativity and cultural learning aids to enjoying your plural identities? Well, I think one of the ways that this happens, and this is where I think the arts are so important, is the arts brings lots of different languages. And those languages express different identities and different ideas. And that having expressed them in the other forms, you can then very often go back to words again to explain what you just did, but you wouldn't have been able to do that if you hadn't done it a different way. And therefore, automatically, if you start dancing, you are developing a new identity with different ideas and so on and so forth. And this connection between language and identities is really powerful and I think only dimly understood. There was a project that we did in Norway 
we were working in schools, but one of the schools happened to be a residential centre for young teenagers with serious mental health issues. So serious that they were taken away from their families and schools and put into this institution for a period of time to try and find help for them. And there we put a filmmaker in to that residential unit who made a film with a group of teenage girls who were there. And at the end, one of the girls came and said, could I borrow the film equipment because I want to make my own film? She borrowed the film equipment and she made one of the most powerful and amazing films I've ever seen. It's only about 12 minutes long, but it's about social anxiety disorder, which is what she had uh, suffered from so acutely that she had retired to her bedroom and wouldn't come out even to meet with her family and so Mm. forth. And it was this that led to the crisis and her moving to it. So I was visiting the institution a while later. She was still there. I'd seen the film and I met the director of the institution and uh, I said, what an amazing film, what a talented young woman she was. And um, he said, would you like to meet her? And I said, well, I'd love to. So we were sitting in his office. So he said, okay. And he disappeared. And a few minutes later, there was a knock on the door and in comes this girl. And we sit and we chat for about 45 minutes about filmmaking and what she wants to do with her career and about the ideas of the films and all that kind of thing. And then at the end, she says goodbye and she goes. And the director comes back in and um, says, what was that like? I said, it was absolutely amazing. What an extraordinary, bright, intelligent lady. But... I thought she had social anxiety disorder so bad she has to go to institution. Um, and yet she just sat and chatted to a complete stranger for 45 minutes without any problem. He mm-hmm. said, yes, she only has social anxiety disorder in Norwegian. <sighs> the, now, this is known about quite a lot of mental health problems. Anorexia is language-based. If you learn a different language and go to a different country, your anorexia will go away. You only have it in a particular language. Wow. Mind blown. (laughs) So this notion of the arts bringing multiple new languages to you is bringing multiple new ways of living to you. And you explore those ways of living through them. Mm. And as it says, it allows for this much richer, much more complex and fascinating person to emerge. This also ties into, so you can play between identities, you can think versus remembering, because only focusing on remembering is also putting yourself back in a box. Yes. So opening boxes is a red line throughout everything, I guess. (laughs) No, but but it's absolutely true. You know, a lot of children, young people have a problem with maths and they believe they can't do it. And actually, to get them to solve this problem, you have to get them to imagine a different identity in which they're good at maths. Mm -hmm. And they then start developing that identity and find, well, what ways, how can I help you do that? I mean, I remember talking to a teacher once and we were talking about great learning experiences. I said, what was the greatest learning moment in your life? And he thought, he said, well, I studied classical music composition in secondary school. It was very, very difficult. And it was really hard and I couldn't do it. And then one day I could do it. That was my great learning experience. And I said, that's amazing. Mm. So what happened? And he thought about it for a long time. He said, I'll tell you what happened. I stopped telling myself I couldn't do it. And it, it's that. I'm now going to be a different person. I'm going to be the person who can do classical music composition. And then once you've done that, then the door's open and you're willing to do that. Yeah. So all the blocks to learning are in your mind and you created them. That also sounds a lot like the growth mindset that Carol Dick always. Absolutely. 
yeah. That, that's why she's a genius because yeah. um, <laughs> she's talking about this. With the trainee teachers that I've just been working with in Thailand, we did an activity around the creative habits of mind and people were self-assessing them. And I was talking to this young trainee teacher and she'd assessed herself badly on imagination and curiosity. And I said, why? And she said, well, see, in the case of imagination, I do actually have lots of ideas, but I don't have the confidence to tell them to anybody. Mm-hmm. And curiosity is the same. I'm in class, I have lots of questions, but I don't have the confidence to ask them. I said, well, that just says you are very curious and very imaginative, but you're not very confident. Right? Yeah. The, you've got to separate those things yeah. out. Now, let's deal with the confident issue. So she said, okay, how do I stop being confident? And I said, well, first of all, you have to recognize that lack of confidence is a learnt behavior. Mm. You have learnt that from the way people have responded to you. Babies do not lack confidence. That's absolutely for sure. But they learn it from the way adults react to them because all our identities, in effect, are developed through the way other people see us and how we respond to that and so forth. So what you need to do is to think about what has happened in your life that has given you this lack of belief in yourself? Because it's obviously quite deep. And she went away to think about it. And then later, we had this conversation. And it transpired that when she was about five, her dad walked out on the house and disappeared. And she was the only child, if you see what I mean. And she didn't see him again until she was 20 or something. And you go... That's the kind of thing that really gets your... That's a learnt behaviour there, which is a five-year-old will inevitably think, what have I done to make Mm -hmm. him go? Yeah. And that's probably where it comes from. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. A little bit of a jump to a different subject, but there's one thing I remember when we were in European Perspective, is that we also had a discussion about whether creativity should be tested in schools. Yes. I remember, because you are an advisor to the OECD, you were saying that, like PISA, they are maybe preparing different ways of testing creativity. Can you give us an update? How far are you? And is it wise? (laughs) (laughs) They have developed a test of creativity, which they are rolling out at the moment because it's going to be a centerpiece of PISA um, in this round. Mm. But I've never seen it, so I don't know quite what it does. Ah, Okay. As I said earlier on, I now see creativity and learning as being inextricably connected. Mm. And therefore, all the initiatives I do, we do, aimed at changing schools are about deepening learning that's what interests me so we have approaches we train teachers to practice in particular ways which we believe will improve learning deepen learning i do think we need to explore how to find out whether that's actually happening yeah good question just for our own learning let alone everyone else who wants to know you know you've told us to do all these programs how do we know it's made any difference? (laughs) Uh (laughs) Now, the problem that a lot of people around the world are looking at exactly the same issue. So in Thailand, for instance, the 
organization that I work for there commissioned big research institutes in Thailand to look at the competencies and behaviors that they would like to see developed, most of which are around the creative habits of mind, if you see what I mean. Mm. And then come up with a complex, with a matrix, which provides level indicators for different grades, if you see what I mean. So you go, if a child does this in grade one, they are being imaginative appropriately. And so they went away and did this. And it came up with 176 indicators. Now, that's for one child. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So the teachers just look at you and go, this is never going to happen. I mean, how often am I supposed to be assessing each child to know whether this is really happening? or not yeah and researchers go well we've got to do this systematically and we've got to measure children in the program and measure children out of the program and so on and so forth now because i think creativity and learning are basically the same we've become more interested in things called executive functions of the brain Mm. so executive functions of the brain are things that psychologists have known about for a long time and they are learning dispositions if you like and they fall into three main categories which is inhibitory control managing yourself physically socially emotionally Mm. working memory which is your short-term memory in which you can hold a certain amount of information simultaneously whilst you manipulate Mm. it and third one is flexibility of mind be able to see things from different directions have new ideas and so on and so forth Now, when you look at the detailed language around those and the detailed language about the creative habits of mind, you realize you're talking about the same set of things. Yeah. That then opens up new possibilities because there are tests of executive function which have been developed and tested over decades. And more recently, people have started to put them on digital notepads. And so there's one in particular that we've worked with for the last three or four years, which is developed by a research institute at University in Santiago, Chile, called Yellow Red. And here you can go into a classroom with a pile of notepads, give them to the children. They play games, essentially what appears to be some fun games. Mm. And as they play these games, it measures their executive functions. And when it's finished, you press a button and it uploads the information into a computer. And you then get instant readouts of your children's executive functions in 20 minutes. And wow. that's possible that's cool. to do on a significant scale. And one of our hopes is that we're going to do a big test of several thousand Thai children to have a look at the relationship between their executive functions and their school progress, Mm -hmm. um, academic progress, and so forth. See the relationship. Because I suspect I'll find that their executive functions are better than their school results would let you know because the school results aren't challenging them in the right way. But we'll see what we'll find out. But I think that some of these tests will become very widely used because, as I said, it, it, there, there are plenty of researchers who can go into a university, it can go into a classroom and sit there for several days and evaluate your children. But that's never going to become no. scalable. Yeah. No. And therefore we need to do something else. And I think this is the most promising 
And once again, the name was the yellow red test. Yes. Did I catch that correct? Okay. Yes. Definitely going to dive into that. It sounds very interesting. <laughs> I know. I was thinking to myself, oh, rabbit hole. I want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Something else to dive in. <laughs> uh, looking at the time, I think we should go to our last question. Manja, is that okay with you? No, I want to keep talking for days. We can't keep hostage. So is there anything we did not ask already that you still feel is very important to share with our listeners? No, I've got, I've got a question for you. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it on. The, you were very nice about the training, the workshop that you came to, mm-hmm. and I very much enjoyed having you there. Looking back now, what do you think you each took away from that that was of value? I think for me, it deepened my awareness mm-hmm. of how creativity is asking every participant in whatever exercise you do mm-hmm. to show a bit of themselves. Mm-hmm. And if you have enough safety in a classroom, mm-hmm. it is a very good way in mm-hmm. to talk about diversity mm-hmm. because if you look at a painting and I look at a painting and we both create our own stories, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. It's not strange. It's, or it shouldn't be strange. It shouldn't be scary. Mm. It should open your mind up for wondering about how can this other person have this perspective. Mm. And that's a very safe place to start, I think, exploring perspectives mm. on life in general. Mm. And I think arts and creativity, when they make stuff, if the exercise is good and there was space for thinking and for being authentic then you have 30 different outcomes to one exercise that you did which is i think what creativity is all about and it's a very safe place to start exploring these subjects around identity and i think that's for me what european perspective made me even more aware of and deepened my knowledge about it interesting yeah well just here here to what linda just said I think it also brought the ability to be present in the moment and to be curious about the other and in meeting the other to learn more about myself. And I think you're a very capable team of being present and you had your whole bag with possible exercises we could do, Mm. but really tuning in to what's happening in the group Mm. and playing with that. I really admired that skill. So that i think it was what you would call a safe space for meeting each other and experimenting and inspiring for our own work as well Mm. yeah there are still some things that we uh, use in our daily uh, routine as well and that also got into uh, itap pd some of the exercises and of course the little duck we didn't even speak about lego what you do there (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) the time and we are keeping people hostage (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so maybe we'll uh, one time do a second interview and dive into the Lego work. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I think they, those are very interesting reflections and those are helpful to me. One of the things I really try hard to do is to be incredibly aware of what's going on in the group mm-hmm. and to be changing what the plan is. Because actually by the end of the European Perspective Workshop, generally the participants had started running the workshop don't know how aware they were of that 
But actually, they were leading more and more of the activities. They were saying, can't we do this instead of that? Can't we do this? No, 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 we can do this and so forth. And it all goes back to the self-managing, which is that actually for the workshop to mean something after people have left, it has to be things the participants have taken ownership of, if you see what I mean, yeah. and mm-hmm. taken away. And that remains the driver, I think, in all the workshops that I do. It's very difficult to do that on a one-day workshop because the, there isn't really the time for building the relationships and other things necessary. And I think that thing about being a safe space to take risks in, which is what you're always trying to achieve, mm. and that's the complicated bit. Because you're right, people were exposing themselves. <laughs> I, I definitely did. <laughs> I think I even in the mapping exercise where we use tape to map Europe, I told people from Wales that I knew better than them where Wales lie in Europe. So that's me and my impulsivity (laughs) and being very engaged. (laughs) It was quite horrible. (laughs) That was a fascinating activity. It is, yeah. I'd I'd never done it before. I've only ever done it in in that. And it was such a risky one. Yeah, I know. I had no idea the first time I did it, what was going to happen? You just give a pile of tape, people say, make a map Mm. of Europe. The whole relationship building that then starts happening, because you can't do it as a group unless you start building relationships with people and so on and so forth and having conversations and and the kind of conversation that you're talking about. But it's it's never been appropriate anywhere else to do that, but it always remained one of my favourite activities ever. Yeah, definitely. It makes you very, very aware of who you are and what your view of the world is and where yeah. that view comes from. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And how yeah, you're absolutely. viewed. Yeah. And how you're viewed. Yeah. Yeah. That as well. And I think the basic thing, which we all thought, which we all came to, is because on the whole, everyone who came on the workshop was a keen European, pro European, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. is we all discovered how little we knew about Europe. Yes. <laughs> that was kind of painful, said, yes. <laughs> yes. Can you be can you be so keen so keen on something you know very little about? Yeah, or you think you know stuff about, but you how you know yeah, you, you all you know is from the media. Is that yeah. is that really the reality? And only yeah. just a few stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I think then time has come to uh, say very much uh, thank you to you, Paul, for opening up your agenda and uh, and your wonderful mind to have this conversation. It's been a pleasure. And your storytelling skills. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's always fun to talk to the two of you. For our listeners, we will share links to different things that we talked about in the show notes. So. If you have anything to share, you can send it to us, Paul, and then we'll add it as well. Thank you very much indeed. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Tapping Into Creativity. In our show notes, you can find more information about our guest and the subjects that were discussed in this interview. If you liked what you heard, you can help us reach many more listeners by hitting the subscribe button, giving us a five-star review, and sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Tapping into creativity is part of iTapPD, 
which is short for International Teacher Artist Partnership Professional Development. We are currently building a model and training about partnerships between teachers and artists in education. ITAPPD facilitates a place and time where we can jointly develop our understanding, expertise and creativity on working with young people. We explore and play with the different perspectives teachers and artists have on behaviour, development and language. If you want to know more about our project ITAPPD, please visit the show notes. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Erasmus Plus Strategic Partnership Programme. Partners in ITAPPD are... The Education Center in Trulli. Center za dramu u edukaciji i umetnosti, CEDEUM. Panelinio Dictio Yeto Theatros in Ekpedis. Stichting Copa, Kunsteducatie. We were your hosts, Linda and Manja, from Stichting Copa in the Netherlands. Audio editing was done by Yelda Shahidi. Hope you tap in with us again. Have a nice day.